0: We enter the wilderness once again in the preaching and hearing of the gospel that was revealed to Israel in the wilderness in their wanderings after their exodus from Egypt. And We're at Exodus chapter 17 and the last part of that, verses 8 through the end through verse 16, the record of the battle of the nation of Israel against the Amalekites, now verse 8 Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim and Moses said to Joshua choose us some men and go out fight with Amalek Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek and Moses Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill So it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is My Banner, or Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Thus far we read the word of God. What follows is my sermon based on that text and that incident recording the battle of the nation of Israel against the Amalekites. In fact, this battle is the record of World War I, not the World War I of the 20th century of allies and axes of those who are the good guys, we would say, and those who were the evil. But this is the war of Israel, the people of God, the enemies of God. That's World War I, if we could only get that into our heads. That's the principal war that's ever fought in all of history. The godless haters of God fight the people of God, Israel, the church, and God himself. This, in fact, is the war arising from the negative side of the very promise of God at the first in the garden when he promised to the devil, addressing the devil, that there would be enmity between the devil and his children and between the children of the woman, the people of God, and and the devil. There would be a spiritual separation and antagonism. There would be hostilities, Forever, This, I say, is part of the promise God establishes so that there will ever be His people who will not be the people of the devil and the devil's people who will be opposed on every side by God who fights on the side of right and righteousness and even of His Son. There's an antagonism which comes to blows at every point. This is the battle of the ages between not only good theoretically and evil theoretically, but between God and evil, the people of God and evil. This war, Israel against the Amalekites, which took uh, upon them unprovoked to fight the Israelites, occurred some two months uh, after Israel was delivered from Egypt. They're on their way to Sinai. This war, however, recorded in the Old Testament of an Old Testament people of God and an Old Testament enemy, the Amalekites, is the principal war of God's people against all the world. It's for our learning. It's for our learning of the war of the enemy and of the victory that is God's and how he affects that victory. So I would ask you, church, are we the battling church? That is, are we fighting against the Amalekites, the world? Are we those who trust in the victory that is God's? Are we those who have no clue, on the other hand, of this battle? We need to, because the church, as God has made her, is and ever shall be the church militant and till she goes to heaven. She must be the church militant, even as Israel in this very first battle had to learn how to fight. We have to learn how to fight. And Maybe for some of us that means picking up the armor of God for the first time. May God make us a battling people, not battling against each other, not quibbling about this or that, but the righteous battle and the righteous battling people. May he do that so that we're armed with his sword and defended by his spiritual armor, and we know the conquest which is God's. So we want to consider, first of all, remembering the Amalekites. We're taught to remember them in no uncertain terms and in different ways and then remembering to fight the Amalekites, and then remembering that victory that God gives over the Amalekites. It is striking at this time in Exodus 17, in these beginning chapters recording the wilderness wandering, that God shows to Israel every step that He provides for them. He provides leadership through Moses, His chosen leader and through the pillar of cloud by day and of fire by night. That awesome pillar, children, that God showed that, that presence, that visible presence of God in their midst, so that when the cloud rose up from the ark of the covenant that would be built, they would follow that cloud and they would stop wherever the cloud went or the fire went, and they would know where to go. God provided them leadership. He would provide that also through Jethro soon, who knew the wilderness, but he provides that himself and also through Moses. He provides food. As we've seen in Exodus 16, there's this mysterious thing called manna that drops from the sky every single night. And he also at times condescends to give quail. He gives water from rocks, does God. What a God. Go figure. Water from rocks, God gives it. And that rock is Jesus Christ. But here now, in Exodus 17, the last part, God shows he gives protection. The Egyptians were the enemy under whom Israel languished for 400 plus years. Now there's this other enemy. How can it be? How can that be in this wilderness? Well, God would give them protection no matter how it can be, but we know it must be. There will always be these enemies. And they're enemies indeed. The Amalekites, most likely descendants of Esau, twin brother of Jacob. You remember what Esau was like, children? He was that elder brother of, of, Rachel, uh, of Jacob, son of Rachel, and he hated God. He sold his covenant birthright for a mess of pottage. He later married heathen wives, and in every way he showed he despised God's covenant and his promise, And he's, in fact, called in Romans 9 the one who's hated of God. Jacob, have I loved Esau, have I hated? And that doesn't mean loved less. He hated. God condemned Jacob or Esau to uh, the hell that he was earning by his sinful life and rejection of God. He's a hater of God and God's people. Now, this race from Esau, and that's the idea, these Amalekites are... The great great grandchildren of Esau. They dwelt at this time, apparently, in the Sinai Peninsula where Israel was. They also dwelt in parts of Palestine, we're told. Perhaps they're a nomadic people and vying they would be for Israel for a good pasturage. One way of looking at their attacking Israel was to remind ourselves that often. In the history of the nations, there come about squabbles about land and territory and resources. And so it could be looked at from one point of view that the Amalekites were seeing Israel as interfering on their land that they were claiming for themselves. And they were enemies and they would get rid of this, this intrusive people. In fact, it could be at that time, we told it was maybe the spring of the year, that, or uh, turning into summer. They would be going toward the highlands to, to escape the heat and to provide some, some forage for their, their sheep and so on. And this is exactly where Israel was headed, toward the mountains of Sinai, and um, Amalek would prevent that. But we need to know here there's something far greater and more significant going on in squabbles over this territory and pasture land. There is here enmity, as we said, has always been, but enmity and hatred of a spiritual kind. God, in fact, is visiting the iniquity of Esau upon the children. We see this in the Amalekites. They're the ones who are the heirs of bad instruction. Their parents taught them that this Israelite people was not the people we like, we hate them, because they stole our birthright and so on. They were taught these things and they showed it here and they do fight Israel. In fact, Deuteronomy 25 reminds us and gives us a comment of just how they fought Israel and God wants the people to remember that. Deuteronomy 25:17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, our text. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks The rear guard, all the stragglers at your rear, the old, the sick, the weary, the women, the children, perhaps, all the stragglers at your rear, that's where they they attacked. And when when you were tired and weary, that's when they attacked. And this too, the Bible says, they did not fear God. Therefore, it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This nation of Amalek and the children of Esau, therefore, is a dastardly sort of people. They don't even fight honorably. They would get people or get Israel to uh, at her weakest point. But spiritually, you see, there is something. This is some knowledge that this people claim to be God's people, and they were this people that was favored over our descendant Esau, and we're out to get this people. Therefore, this isn't the Hatfields and the McCoys. This is the devils from the abyss, and this is the people of God from heaven. Then came Amalek, is the first word of our text. They came from hell, and they came to take no survivors. They would kill off the people of God. They don't fear God, and their hatred of God and their fearlessness before God is taken out on the children of Israel. This is why Balaam himself, who prophesies of the destruction of Amalek, Balaam, a magician who was called of Balek to curse the people of God, but he couldn't, he instead pronounces the destruction of Amalek in numbers 24, and calls it "the first of the nations." implying it was the first of the nations to attack the people of God. Now, this we know from the typology that it is, the picture that it is, the enemies of the people of God that they are in the Old Testament, that this first of nations, which is the infamous title given to Amalek, means it is a representative of all the nations, the heathen, the goyim, that are against God and His people. It is against all the nations that shake their fist at God and would contend with Him and everything that represents Him and everyone. It is this people that does not want the people to be the people of God, and so they'll try to get them before they get to Sinai and are constituted this people, and before, certainly, they get to the promised land. They will have none of God in this earth and none of God's representatives and certainly none of his Christ. We're called to remember this. Israel was called to remember this. God would have them even write down for memorial in a book and recount it to Joshua that God would utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek under heaven. That's significant here. The first time there's writing said to be in the Bible, verse 14, they're to write something down so that this might be some more sure word of prophecy, a Bible, about what is going on here. Israel must have this memorial, that God will do war, as he says, forever and, in fact, from generation to generation upon Amalek. They are to remember that, and therefore, they are to fight on God's behalf here. In fact, they are to do this because, at bottom, this was an attack on God, and, in fact, it could be translated, verse 16, to call this altar, Moses was, The Lord is my banner, For, he said, because the Lord has sworn our translation, or better, perhaps, because there has been this assault on the throne of God. And there's commentaries who differ over that translation. But it's certainly true, whatever the translation is, that there was an attack on the throne and kingship of God here. And that's why God said, I'm going to fight with them forever. How dare they attack my people? And we are, as I say, to remember this, to remember that the Amalekites are the enemies of God. Now, how do we do that? You see any Amalekites anywhere? You see any Amalekites anywhere? Well, beloved, the Amalekites represent the world. The whole world, the whole world, John says, it lies in wickedness, ready to get us, ready to get our children, ready to get us in our growing old and smug and satisfied with ourselves so that we become, instead of a humble church, a proud church. Or we become, instead of a church that fights spiritual battles, a church that engages in in culture wars, as if these were the things we have to do battle with more than discipling the nations. They want to divert us, attack us where we're weakest, attack us when we're not so comfortable with bearing a cross and, and all of this thing. The Amalekites represent the world. And that's the first thing you have to remember, beloved, isn't it? If we're going to remember this... And if Israel was to remember this in Deut- Deuteronomy 25, don't forget it. We must too. That life is a battle, not a stroll in the park. That there is this enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the, the, uh, the devil. And that we're right in the middle of this battle still today till the end of the ages. And it's not getting better. In perilous time, Paul says to Timothy... Perilous times, evil men shall wax worse and worse. And when the Son of Man shall come, shall he find faith on the earth, faith to fight the battle, faith to take up the sword of the word and to arm ourselves with the armor of God, as we'll see in our second point. But first, it's the case that we must remember this. And Jesus himself reminds us that the world is in neutral, that there is no such thing as kind of a half Amalekite. Amalekites are all into this thing. The world is all Amalekitish. It's like that. Jesus says, in fact, he is not for me, he is against me. This is one of the texts that I remember stumbling across when I was first learning Reformed theology and total depravity and all of that. He is not for me is against me, Jesus says. If you're not Israel, you're Amalek. You're not some good and kind Ben Franklin sort of a guy who's kind of halfway in between. He who's not for me is against me. And he who's not gather with me, Jesus says, scatters. And that's how we're to look at the world. That it is, the whole world that lies in wickedness, which John also says we are not to love. For all that's in the world is not of the Father, it's of the pride of life and the lust of the flesh and so on, the lust of the eyes. And so how are we fighting? And are we recognizing that often the Amalekites come from the compromised church? This is taught in this text. The representative of all the enemies of the people of God in all the world at all time is Amalek, descendant of Esau, brother of Jacob, from the covenant home of Rachel. And here is this guy who knows something. He knows something of the promise. He's been there under the preaching. He's heard this. And his parents maybe compromised a little bit, maybe on the Sabbath day observance, and maybe on this and that. And then he took another step beyond that when he married or she married. And they became a little more loose about Sabbath day, not only, but about every day and about worship. And they were compromising. And so what happens is out of the church's loins come the worst of the Amalek's because those who know better are the ones who are the most haters of God and truth because they don't want anything of not only the Lordship, but the salvation of Jesus. They don't like the message of such perfection that's required and such holiness and of such a Savior who comes to save us and we need it. Instead of all of the theology of Jesus and the cross and the blood, let us, as good Christians, be peaceable with the world, with the Amalekites, friends. And that's the first thing I want to say to you when we're talking about the battle here. Remember this. The battle comes hottest. Not to fight the Amalekites, but to make treaties with them. Not to kill them, but to bring them into bed. For that, I say, if you're going to remember the Amalekites and remember God who fights the Amalekites, and therefore should we, I point you to Saul. Turn with me to 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 15. This is a striking record here of someone who forgot the command of God or the the banner and the testimony that was to remind them that God's going to fight the Amalekites from generation to generation. Later on, Saul forgot that. Remember, Saul's a king after... The nations chosen by the people. We're going to read the first nine verses, first Samuel fifteen. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord said to me, sent me to anoint you king over his people over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Note that utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman infant and nursing child ox and sheep camel and doggie. This by the way is that why certain schools are banning the Bible from their jurisdiction. This is the latest of the banning of religion and freedom in the public schools. Here's what they say. The Bible is violent. It's not fit for children's ears. God said to Saul kill both man and woman infant and nursing child ox and sheep camel and donkey how terrible of this god of the old testament beloved this is holy of the god of the old testament read on so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah and Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley And Saul said to the Kenites, go and depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. So far, so good. Now read on. But Saul and the people spared Agag the king and the best of the sheep, the oxen and the fatlings and the lambs and all that was good and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. Unwilling, they certainly knew they should, but they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel and it was a word of rebuke and of the announcement that God would take the kingdom away from Saul. In fact, that's an example here of a religious person in the name of God saying, you know, we can do better than that in this case, better than just destroy people and damn people off the pulpit and so on, whatever. We're going to spare people. We're going to be enriched by this world after all. We can enjoy these things, and we need to remember that God is the God of love and mercy and so on. Beloved, if you would remember Amalekite, the Amalekites and God, remember Saul and do not do as Saul did. Saul compromised the word of God, the word of the cross, the word of what is offensive to the world and the Amalekites. They can say we're against all of this now our religion, but we can't say we're against all your broad religion. Can't say that. You'll never win the people. You'll never win a following. You'll never become great in Comstock Park, Grand Rapids of the world, if you preach the offense of the cross and the holiness of God. You need a minister like the nations, beloved, for that. You need a minister from the liberal semin- seminaries, cemeteries down the pike. What do you want? That's the question. Well, here's how we want to remember Saul and not do as he do does, and remember Israel of old that, strikingly, was obedient to God. That's striking about this whole thing. In Exodus 17, the first part of it is they're complaining and they're, they're not even thinking that God is among them. Verse 7, is the Lord among us or not? They tempted the Lord. It was a terrible sin. And in the same place now, the Amalekites comes and fights against him and they, they don't show any complaint. They don't show any discouragement. They follow the lead of Moses and of Joshua and they fight and they're used of God to discomfit the enemy. So may we. First, that means trust. Remember Saul, don't do as he, and trust God. Trust completely in God. Rely upon God. Now, think of it. The Amalekites were probably pretty learned in war, but Israel didn't know a thing about it. We don't read of their having any any armaments either, any AK-47s or any tanks or anything. They didn't have anything. They didn't learn, they didn't know war, and they had to learn war. And so they're trusting in God. God says, fight the Amalekites, and here they are, and they've not spared uh, their women, they've they've attacked them in the rear and so on, and this is going to be a bloody battle, and we don't know how many of them are in the hills and so on. And they trust in God. And to trust in God, of course, they have to trust in God as he's revealed himself. God has revealed himself at the burning bush. He's the I am that I am. God's revealing himself in Moses and in Joshua, the captain of the host. And God reveals himself in Jesus, of course. This is what every revelation is about. This is what the Bible is about. Don't you know, beloved? It's about Jesus, the revelation of the God who fights our battles, who is our manna, who is our water from the rock, who is the rock. Who is the leader? Who is the Shekinah glory? Who is your help in your bereavement? Your help in your success? Your help, success? Your help in your temptations and trials? Your help at every stage of life, so that you're not a mere victim of your own sin and circumstance and past. You're His in Jesus, and the people of God must have recognized something of that then, because look what they did in verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book after they defeated Amalek, recounted in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar there and called its name, the Lord is my banner. The altar is the cross, beloved. He didn't build the cross but that's what the symbol is. And we're not told that there's any sacrifices offered there, but that is to be assumed almost. Won't force that into the Bible, but wherever there's altars, there's sacrifices in Old Testament Israel. Even before the law of the sacrifices, there was this, there was this attachment to God and this drawing near to God, this remembrance and praise of God through an altar. That means through the cross Ultimately. That means to the blood. That means we celebrate God, Jehovah on this side, Jehovah, our help in Jesus. Do you? Do you? Do you know that help? That's trusting in God. It's trusting in his Jesus. And it's praying. In fact, people have seen in this first battle, in Moses with the hand raised, and they're probably both of them at the same time, we're not sure, but the rod is up there, the rod of Aaron's rod that budded, the rod that did the miracles and so on, symbolizing the power of God straight up in the air. They're recognizing in there's, there's something of prayer there. Not told that Moses prayed, though. But there's something in which he's symbolizing here his trust in God and Israel's strength that is from God alone. And God alone, so that Moses' hands aren't stretched out over the army as if communicating some power to them so that Joshua can overcome and they can be miraculously helped that way. No, it's just God. He's lifting up his arms too, and not Israel. He's lifting over his arms over the battlefield. There's this direct connection with God that he's feeling not only but he's knowing and that he's symbolizing for the people who might have been able to look on this mount that Moses went to. We're not told how far off the battlefield he was. But Moses is doing something here of mediation. And so commentators have recognized that this is indeed the case for us. We need to be praying in the battle. And it's true. It's true. We need to be recognizing God in an intelligent understanding of the God who trusts and in a pleading to the God who is our help in the battle and whose help we need. And so we pray, help us, God. They're getting us at our weakest point, and we cannot guard ourselves over there. And we don't know the art of war. And the devil, he's so tricky. And you come to your wit's end, and that's where you're supposed to come to wit's end, to your own strength's end. Say, God, help me. That's what Paul says to the Colossians. We we labor earnestly in prayer for you. That's what ministers are to do for the people of God and and the elders are to do for the people of God and the deacons and all of us for the people of God and all of us for the cause of Jesus Christ. Are you fighting that way on your knees? On your knees, are there holes worn in the knees of your jeans, men? And not just because you're taking care of the cows or something else, though, good work, but so that you're doing the work of prayer for yourself, for your family, for this church, for the rest of the Church of Christ, for the neighbor and all of the people that God puts in your path. Pray, pray, pray. And then fight. God called Moses. Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. First time we read of Joshua here. Must have been a young man. He's the one who later on would champion with Caleb the cause of God taking the Canaanites when the rest of the spies wouldn't go along with it. Here's Joshua, faithful. Joshua is used to fight with the people of God while Moses stood on the top of the hill. This points out the two twin arms that were given, prayer and work, prayer and fighting. That's what it is. Pray to God and exercise your responsibility as he gives you to fight the good fight of faith. You see? Fight to the death. That's what is said here. Fight not just to take prisoners. Amalekites must die. And that leads to this. If we're going to be fighting all the Amalekites in this world, make sure you recognize the inveterate died in the nature. Amalekite, you. You. The Bible calls us to make friends with the enemy? No. To mortify your flesh? No. To kill and crucify the flesh. And the spirituality of your battle and the success of it will be when you recognize that you have met the enemy and the enemy is us. Me, myself, and I, worst enemy. And you, yourself, and you. And so Israel is called here in the New Testament Israel, in light of the new covenant and all of the blessings of the revelation of God, that testimony of the word. To take to heart the fact that you're just a sinner and you're an Amalekite by nature. And but for the grace of God, you're attacking Israel instead of being Israel. And you fight against the flesh. How? Repentance. True repentance and putting away sin and anything that would cause you to compromise. Hating the enemies of God. Yes, with perfect hatred. Not as your enemies, but as God's. God hates uh, Esau. Don't you? Or you want to mollycoddle them. Oh, they're such nice people. And in the name of evangelism, we'll just kind of love them to death and love them to pieces and tolerate all their stuff. They have to know if they would know the love of God in you, something of the hatred of God in you. Or you're not presenting the truth of God. Oh, it's so hard, Pastor. It's the Word of God. When we take the side of God, we're taking this, the, the side against all that's against God. That starts in ourselves. In the catechism, the, the form for the supper, we must. Abhor ourselves. And that's not bad psychology. Oh, you've got to confirm yourself. Be easy on yourself. Well, yeah, in a way, we're not suicidal. Don't ever have those strange thoughts. They're bad. But we are militant against ourselves. So, this is just a couple of comments on the, the fight, but of course, it's with the Bible according to the way God says we are to fight the good fight of faith, as Paul calls it, with the Bible. Here is written down for a memorial. We're to write it down in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, foreshadowing the fact that there be a whole book written for us, the wonderful, sure word of prophecy of the inspired, infallible word of God, Christianity, the Christianity of the book, and when we go into the battle, we take the book. And we aim our sword, the Bible, at sinners and at ourselves. And we dare not come with the book of man or the book of Eli or the book of whatever else it is. The book of God. And the blood of Jesus. That's how we fight. In the name of Jesus. Well, how are we doing? How... How are we doing? There's a lot more that could be said about this. And we have to be careful, beloved. We have to call enemies enemies of God, friends of God, friends of God, not to be charitable, but recognize and discern so that we can truly fight the battle in the name of God. Do that. Do that. And... Then we'll know the victory. The victory is certain. Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. We could translate that. Joshua mowed down Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. That is, gave no quarter, took no prisoners, slew them all. Now, this is a picture of the complete victory of God over the enemy. That's what happened here. Now, the Amalekites would, the Kites would be around for a while. There would be several armies, even saw, uh, several battles against the Amalekites in the Promised Land. And we read, however, that they might have been completely decimated by the sons of Simeon in the days of Hezekiah in one of the, in one of the chronicles. Be that as it may... They still remain, but that doesn't mean that God's not having the victory. And this is for us to remember. God is making war with the Amalekites. And there's this complete mowing down of the enemy by God and through us. And that's something we need, of course, to remember. This is by God, even though it's through his fighting through us and and with us. Now, it's something that's very important here, not only for a theology, but for a living. The battle didn't depend on Joshua. Striking. Joshua, it says, defeated Amalek with his people with the edge of the sword. But note this. Only when Moses' hands were up did Joshua succeed. When Moses' hands became heavy, then it was that the Amalekites had the better hand. And when, uh, so it was when Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, verse 11. When he let it down, Amalek prevailed. So it tells us that it doesn't matter that Joshua was fighting good or wasn't fighting so good or didn't have a good plan when he went that way and he should have gone that way. That, that did not make the fundamental difference. It was all this, the help of God. When Moses' hands were up, signifying the help of God, the Israelites prevailed. When they went down, signifying that there was this lack of communication or something between heaven and earth, then Amalek prevailed. And that reminds us what is the truth of Reformed theology and of the word of God, God alone saves sinners from Amalekites and Canaanites and Jebusites and Hivites and Hittites and Gergesites and all of your enemies and mine. Then came Amalek. Then came God. And God himself will come at the end of time. This vanquishing of the Amalekites is a picture of the day of judgment when God will come. And it will be then, as Revelation 12 reminds us, that <clears throat> there's woe to the inhabitants of the earth, to be sure, but the people of God overcome the Antichrist by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Those were fighters of Amalekites to the death. Are you? Amen. We pray, Father, your blessing. May this church know the battle, the enemy, and the victory. May we be praying people. May we be a people with the word, sword of God. May we trust in the blood of Jesus May we be those, Lord, who in the midst of the battle take heart and give not up our courage. May we fight on. Keep us from fighting ourselves against each other. Keep us, Lord, when we have different opinions of one mind and seeking the glory of Christ and true biblical reconciliation. Give, Lord, the victory to the church here and in every nation. And so may people like Amalekites, just sinners, themselves be one to Christ, but those who are of the reprobate seed, who constantly and will forever resist you, may they, Lord, be condemned to the hell you've reserved for them. Lord God, it's not about us, it's about you and your cause, and we pray may your cause be exalted, and your banner, even Jehovah Nissi, lifted up, That banner, the cross of Calvary. That banner, our victory through the blood. Hallelujah, Lord. This our battle cry. Amen.